Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Edgy talk. Plain talk. Unrivaled talk. Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Lots going on this morning. It's very foggy out there, but the mist will clear uh, the more you listen to this show. Because after 10 o'clock, uh, we give you clarity. We bring you the news. We bring you uh, exactly what is happening around the world. And there are bl- plenty of things going on. Ben Habib joins us first up. Also, Peter Cardwell, Talk Radio's uh, political editor. He's outside Downing Street where uh, there is a reshuffle underway, believe it or not. Nobody's really sure precisely what this is going to mean. Uh, but more than likely, it may well mean that there's going to be couple of new departments created or broken down uh, just so that somebody can do something with Dominic Raab. That may well be the case. You may not care, but we will tell you why it's important and why you should care. Peter Cardinal will bring us every uh, cough and spit, uh, including any sightings of the cat, of course, no matter what happens. Also, we'll be going live to Turkey this morning uh, where there's a terrible, terrible human catastrophe ongoing. More than 5,000 people dead. Uh, it could be as many as 6,000 before uh, the end of this morning. We'll also be going live uh, to a sentencing hearing uh, for uh, David Carrick, who is, of course, that dreadful um, police officer uh, who pleaded guilty to a series of rapes and sexual assaults uh, uh, over the course uh, of the last several years. They've been hearing terrible, terrible evidence from some of his victims over the last 24 hours. We'll hear some more of that, and we will bring you the judgment live right here on Talk TV. Also, Laura Dodsworth here. She's going to be telling us about what she makes of it all, everything from the dreadful Sturgeon gender row up in Scotland uh, to Sam Smith and his new video. Uh, James Heal will join us as well. Rob Clark uh, is going to be popping in as well to give us the lowdown on why it's so important that the nation's defences are not completely and utterly depleted, uh, because that is entirely what we should not be doing in this day and age. There's a war going on in Ukraine. A lot of people think uh, it's going to be escalated over the course of the next few weeks and months by Vladimir Putin. So this is no time to have no defence of our own. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Let's get it on. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on this auspicious Tuesday. Uh, we'll be talking about Liz Truss's interview, of course, coming up very shortly. She appeared uh, on TV yesterday uh, to give her kind of explanation as to what happened during her 44 days uh, of the stewardship of the economy, which didn't go terribly well. Uh, before we talk to Ben Habib, former MEP, chairman of Brexit Watch, let's go live now to Downing Street. Peter Cardwell is there for us, our political editor. Peter, very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. And here we are again outside the scene of the crime, uh, or several crimes, if you believe the stories. Um, what's, uh, what's happening? 
Not a huge amount so far, it must be said, but we're told a reshuffle will start very soon. Uh, we, Of course, there is a vacant role as the chairman of the Conservative Party. We expect a trade minister called Greg Hans will probably take that role. And also a big government department, the Department of Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, is probably due to be broken up, moved into different parts of government as well. The International Trade Department may take some of it on, maybe the business bit, and uh, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport may. Uh, take some of it on as well so there are all sorts of changes I think that will happen today we may not see more than one new face around the cabinet table cabinets due to happen this afternoon it usually happens in the morning on a Tuesday but it's been postponed because of the reshuffle but I was told yesterday early morning uh, this is not early morning it's 10 o'clock and nothing really has happened yet but we're told that we will find out fairly soon Uh, We won't see people walking down Downing Street into Downing Street. We'll simply be told what has happened in the building behind us and who has accepted those jobs. So we'll find out, hopefully, within the course of your show, Mike. And, of course, I'll bring it to you as soon as I know you. Well, that's no fun, is it? Well, so they're taking away the one bit that we actually liked, which is the theatre of people going in and out of of Downing Street. People (laughs) getting out of cars, being misnamed. uh, I remember you famously uh, talking about somebody that you could see walking up the street, but you weren't quite sure who it was. I mean, that's what we want. We don't want them to just give us what's happened. We want the theatre. Yeah, indeed, actually, the person I didn't know who it was was then the chief whip, Mark Spencer. So it wasn't just knowing someone's name. This, was, this wasn't this was just a cabinet error. This was a Mark Spencer cabinet error. Uh, so that was uh, that. Was that. Uh, but yeah, no, there are there will there, the people won't be walking up and down uh, Downing Street. It's a bit of a shame, really. But also, it's also quite a small reshuffle, perhaps. And even if those bits of machinery of government are changed, well, we could actually only see perhaps two people changing their jobs, mm. one new chairman or chairwoman of the Conservative Party, and if that's someone like Greg Hans, well, someone perhaps brought in from outside, maybe even someone like Conor Burns, the former Trade Minister, who lost his job. He was uh, accused of uh, various things that he was then cleared of, um, and, and it didn't happen. Uh, allegations at Conservative Party conference that were not true. So he may come back in as Trade Minister, in which case it would all be done very simply and tied up in a big bow. Okay. Uh, so the changes in the uh, government departments, of course, as well, will be important. We're expecting a Department of Energy may be created as well because that's something that Rishi Sunak says is really important because energy security of course the supply making sure keeping the lights on is something the Prime Minister wants to do. Absolutely right good stuff thank you very much indeed. Peter Cardwell Talk Radio's political editor reporting into his live from Downing Street uh, what do you mean there's not going to be any theatre well we're going to bring you all the news as it happens if it happens when it happens uh, and indeed if it's worth telling uh, by the sounds of it it's not going to be that exciting but let's talk to Ben Habib uh, former MEP and chairman of Brexit Watch I suppose Ben uh, there's no better way to describe the current government uh, than a reshuffle that isn't really a reshuffle seems to be the only thing they're up to. Morning Mike. Yeah, yeah. well, I mean, they've got a vacancy as chairman, haven't they? Because their latest uh, appointee to that position was found trying to fiddle his taxes mm. or something. And yes. uh, it took Rishi Sunak a few days in an independent inquiry for him to determine that fiddling your taxes was unethical. Right. Um, which tells you a bit about the moral compass of the Conservative Party. But yes, there's definitely a gap there. Greg Hands, by the way, was at university with me. Um, I, I think Greg's a Remain. I'm not speaking out of turn when I say that. But otherwise, a perfectly sensible human being. Yeah. Well, what's he doing at the Tory party? <laughs> I know, that's a very good question. 
safe pair of hands, perhaps. We shall see. But, I mean, it's quite an important role at the moment for, for them, isn't it? Because, I mean, the trouble is, the more people that I speak to outside of the Westminster bubble, the more ordinary people that we talk to here every day on Talk TV, you know, they don't really care who uh, is chairman of the, of the Tory party. They don't really mind whether there's an energy department or a department of trade and industry. But what they do care about is what on earth the government is doing about all the things that are costing them a load of money, either at the petrol pumps or uh, in their homes or in their uh, travels around the supermarkets of this country. And also, they're worried about the people coming here on small boats and who need to be stopped. I mean, and where they're all being put and when this new policy that Rishi Sunak keeps talking about is going to actually have some effect. Well, Mike, all the issues which you've just raised, which are of fundamental importance to the United Kingdom, are all issues that have been hanging around now for at least 12 months, some of them much longer than that, including, of course, the people coming across the channel. And this government has had, let's just remind ourselves, an 80-seat majority, I think it's now down to about 76, but an 80-seat majority since 2019. And it hasn't used that majority to drive any change. Actually, we are very largely, from a legal and regulatory perspective, tax perspective, the same country we were in 2019. The only marginal difference, perhaps, is that taxes have gone up Mm. since 2019. Um, Debt's gone up dramatically since then. Growth is completely stalled. And we've got even more people coming across the channel. What Rishi Sunak, I think, is desperately yearning for is a period of political stability where he can try and address some of these issues. But the problem, I think, that fundamentally Rishi Sunak's got, irrespective of whether his heart is in the right place or not, as you and I might see Mm. it, is that that 76 technical majority he's got no longer exists. You know, the Conservative Party is deeply divided. It used to be protocol that when a prime minister left office, they kept a very low profile for a very long time. And I think the only thing you can say to Theresa May's credit is that she has kept a very low profile. But the two most recent incumbents of that office are causing real trouble for Rishi Sunak. Mm. You know, Boris Johnson undoubtedly is considering a comeback. And, And Liz Truss wants to put her record straight. And so you have a Conservative parliamentary party that is partly supportive of Theresa May, partly supportive of Boris Johnson, partly supportive of of Liz Truss, and there's a lot of infighting going on. So I think Rishi Sunak, irrespective of the integrity of his intentions, we can debate those, and I've got serious question marks over, uh, over them, but irrespective of that, I think he's going to find it really problematic bringing his parliamentary party together and making any change over the next 18 months. I mean, people are beginning to say things to me like there is no such thing really anymore as a Conservative Party. It's a sort of a series of factions of infighting going on constantly under the surface. You know, uh, you might see the ship... Uh, sailing off towards the iceberg. Meanwhile, you know, inside the engine room and on the bridge, people are just fighting each other and nobody's looking yeah. at the iceberg that they're about to hit. You know, that's kind of the no. the, 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 the envisaging uh, of the party that I see. But let's have a look at what uh, Liz Truss said. She was interviewed yesterday uh, by The Spectator uh, in what was rather strange, I have to say. Um, it looked like three people who had no kind of grasp of reality talking about something that they didn't understand. <laughs> uh, let's have a look at this. This is where she talks about having got the economy right. You know, I thought it was quite significant that after there were more market wobbles and we reversed the 45p tax decision relatively soon, 
we were essentially forced to reverse the position on corporation tax. So mm. although, you know, maybe it was a step too far, I, you know, who knows? We can all, you know, <laughs> you can all do different. This is my point about counterfactuals. You know, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's easy to say. Uh, apparently it's not easy to say. What's counterfactual mean? You know, I mean, I can't imagine three people, and I like Fraser Nelson, I don't know Katie Balls, but I can't imagine three people less kind of in touch with the real world. They were sitting there talking about an event as if it had no effect on the rest of us, as if it had nothing to do with anything other than a sort of a weird laboratory experiment. You're kind of going, sorry, you've completely wrecked the place. Now, I have some sympathy for uh, Liz Truss and the fact that the markets kind yeah. of, you know, took over and, and completely destroyed her image of, of, of what the economy should look like. But nevertheless, you can't deny that it was basically her fault that this all happened. So let's just get a couple of things straight, I think. So before Liz Truss became prime minister, we already had national debt out of control. We already had taxes at a post-World War II high even though they're now going to go even higher than they were. We already had inflation at a 40-year high. We already had a breakdown in the labour market with 5.6 million people on universal credit and it not paying to work in the United Kingdom. All the problems that fundamentally dogged this country, including, of course, the illegal crossings of the Channel, all of those problems existed before she became Prime Minister. Mm. What Liz Truss was trying to do was to make the case for a reduction in taxes, a reduction in regulation, so that it paid again to work, so that businesses could get back on their feet, so the economy could grow. And even though tax rates may have come down, the Treasury would then have taken more in total value of taxes because of the larger economy. And what went wrong for Liz Truss? Well, a number of things went wrong. But first of all, people like Michael Gove, who I would call Tory wet socialists, mm. came out immediately briefing against her. And, you know, the markets don't work in isolation. The markets look at what's happening at the top of our political structures. So they were taking quite a signal from the fact that you had a divided leadership in the Conservative Party. And then on top of that, I, when she announced the very generous energy protection package and the cuts of, in tax, and by the way, the 45% cut to 40% in personal tax rates is irrelevant yeah. in the budgetary scheme of things. It was the optics of that, I think. Well, exactly right. People. I mean, like, like many people who don't see the wood for the trees, you know, she's pointing at one thing as if that was the problem. Yeah. It wasn't the one thing that was the it, problem. That it, was, wasn't, it was the that whole wasn't thing. That wasn't the problem. Yeah. So, so you had Michael Gove briefing against her. And then what we, what we all discovered was that pension funds in order to boost the return on what they regarded as risk-free ownership of government bonds, which actually weren't producing any return because interest rates were down at zero, had borrowed enormous sums of money so they could buy even more of this rubbish. Mm. And when interest rates rose, the value of government bonds, or gilts as they're known, dropped. And they had to dump government bonds. So the cost of government borrowing suddenly went through the roof. And at the same time, the Bank of England was forecasting a recession and the Bank of England had been actually selling government bonds, making the position even worse. Mm. So you had a confluence of events and the market smelt blood. You know, city traders are no more, frankly, I, forgive me, I'm going to speak frankly and I'll be offending city traders, but they're no more than barrow boys yeah, with course. screens, you know, smelling where the market's going to go and taking a position. They started shorting sterling, sterling collapsed. Before you know it, you had a, what was regarded as an economic 
wrongly, by the way, I think, regarded as an economic route. It was a market route, which had been brought together by a whole confluence of events, including the ham-fisted nature in which her mini-budget was presented yeah. and that optically bad 45%. And before you knew it, the ideology, and I think the correct uh, thesis for this country of deregulating and lowering taxes was trashed overnight that notion of traditional conservative financial management was trashed and i think sadly mike that's gone now i yeah. think people people on the orthodox side if you like you know the kind of counterfactual thing that this trust was referring to they think they've won the intellectual battle now it's over mm. high taxation high borrowing spending and low interest rates is much better in their eyes than lower taxation, people earning more, making the decisions about how they spend their money and interest rates mm. therefore having to be slightly higher. And that that's the debate that went on and Liz Truss lost that argument. And may well have destroyed it for everybody else. You're quite right. Ben, stay where you are if you would. Uh, we've got some news coming from Downing Street with Peter Cardwell coming next. Uh, Ben's going to talk to us some more though as well about uh, the Rishi Sunak ECHR scenario as well. This is Talk TV. On DAB+, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Rather cloudy and misty out there this morning, but we're hoping to uh, uh, lift that gloom, uh, to lift uh, that uh, rather unfortunate fog uh, that is all over the place this morning because uh, we need to have some clarity. And this is the one place where you get it. Don't forget tonight, Jeremy Carl from 7pm, Piers Morgan from 8, of course. That's Talk TV and Talk Radio. Tune in on Sky 522, Virgin Media 606, Freeview 237, DAB, uh, or via the various apps that you can get your hands on as well. We're talking to Ben Habib. We're going to come to him in a moment, talking about the European Court of Human Rights. But first, back to Peter Cardwell, live from Downing Street. Uh, he's got a couple of updates on the reshuffle for us. Peter. That's right, Mike. What we're hearing is that Grant Shapps will become the energy secretary alone at the moment. He's the business, energy and industrial strategy uh, secretary, but his new department will be energy security. We're also hearing that Kemi Badenoch is, is probably going to keep her brief at international trade and become the business and international trade secretary uh, combined for that. Uh, there will be a new department in terms of science, technology and innovation. We don't know who's going to be the secretary of state for that yet. That will be a new department. And the other thing we're hearing is that Greg Hans, the current trade minister, will probably become the new chairman of the Conservative Party. So uh, this is not about sackings. This is not about getting rid of people. This is a mini reshuffle creating new departments, different departments. And that's what we're hearing, those key names going in those directions. There will, of course, if Greg Hans becomes chairman of the Conservative Party, there will need to be a new trade minister. The speculation on that one might be Conor Burns, the former trade minister. He lost his job after uh, allegations that were proved not to be true that under Liz Truss's administration. So um, some movement certainly expected, and we, but those are the names in the frame that we're hearing this morning. OK, good stuff, Peter. Thank you very much indeed. Peter Cardwell reporting into us there from Downing Street, where there may well be a reshuffle. If Grant Schatz becomes Energy Security Secretary, uh, that'll be interesting, because he's the guy who, when I once interviewed him, said, but don't you want Britain to be the world's leader in onshore wind? Uh, I said no. Uh, ben Habib is here. Ben, um, Grant Shapps is one of those guys that seems to always get a job, no matter who's in charge. I don't know what he's got on anybody, but he doesn't strike me as the world's greatest uh, thinker. It's extraordinary. I mean, there isn't a role in government he hasn't had. Right. He was Tory party chairman at one point. And I think he had to resign. I can't remember what it was, but he'd done something wrong. Yeah. 
that forced him to resign from that position. He was obviously transport secretary and presided over the um, beginning of the strikes last year. Then yeah. he was momentarily secretary of state for, for, for the NHS, you know, for health, and um, saw, the, saw those strikes in successfully. And uh, I've forgotten now what his post was just before he was appointed energy was secretary. Was he not home but secretary be... for about five minutes as well? Yeah, he was home secretary for five minutes too. Yeah. So he's been right around government. <laughs> I mean, let's and not forget, not... let's not forget, he was transport secretary when the first lockdown happened, uh, when all the flights into Britain were being stopped and he was on holiday in Spain at the time. And you think, well, didn't they tell you yeah. this might be coming up, you know? <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, he's a very old and uh, I suppose they would argue trusted hand. Um, I think he's distinguished himself through mediocrity rather than exceptionalism in any one or the other direction. Yeah. But, you know, energy security is fundamentally important to the United Kingdom. One of the reasons or the principal reason we've got the inflationary spike we've got is because we didn't have uh, an energy independent country. Even though we had masses of gas in the North Sea still, we were closing down storage facilities during lockdowns. Mm. We were shutting down refineries. We had no idea what we were going to do when demand for fuel suddenly increased as, you know, as we ended lockdown. And it is that department that can be to a significant extent held responsible for our inability to get going again as an economy. And remember, we haven't built a single nuclear power station in this country since 1995. That is an abject dereliction of duty when you think that we wanted to move towards green fuels. I think, thankfully, at least the um, the rhetoric now is to build more of these these power stations. But whether or not it will happen remains to be seen. Like mm. so much that comes out of the Conservative government, they talk a really good fight. They deliver very little. Well, which brings us on once again to the migrant crisis, because... Uh, Last weekend, Rishi Sunak's team was sort of busy putting out scenarios that would include possibly Britain leaving uh, the European Court of Human Rights, which I'm not sure would make much difference in any event, even if it ever happened. Yeah, so, I mean, his latest wheeze, and they continue to see controlling the illegal crossings of the channel through a prism of deportation mm. rather than actually enforcement of our borders in the channel. But his latest wheeze is to say that Anyone entering the country illegally across the channel will be stripped of the right to go through the asylum process. And they won't even have the right to appeal their, their being stripped mm. of that right. And that breaches the fundamental, there are three fundamental principles to human rights, the right to family, the right to a fair trial, and the right to liberty. And it breaches the second one of those, yeah. the right to a fair trial. So if he wants to deliver that change in the law, he has to leave the European Convention of Human Rights. There is no way he can have those two things going on at the same time. And as we now know, Mike, there's very little the government can do which is even big, remotely contentious. So for him to try and exit the European Convention of Human Rights when he doesn't command the respect of his own parliamentary party, when he can't garner that 76 seat majority he technically has in in Westminster forget it it ain't happening so what we're going to see this year and I think it's forecast I'm sure you've seen the figures is a 50 percent increase in channel crossings from around 45,000 last year to around 70 over 70,000 this year and that may be the final nail in his coffin 
And I don't know whether you read, Mike, but there's been a very troubling development up on these people mm. crossing the channel. There's a group called Badri 313. Have you heard of Badri 313? No. So Badri 313 is a self-professed elite Taliban fighting force. And they have uh, either a splinter group or people who identify and sympathize with them who've taken it on themselves to, to follow that naming. Some group called 313 that's been seen, filmed on the French Channel, helping people into these boats, um, promoting the crossing of the Channel. And then the pictures of people in London, young men in London, making the symbol of 313. And effectively, they're terrorists. Come, if, the, if, the, if the imagery of what we're seeing, the filming that we're mm. seeing is accurate, we're seeing active promotion of terrorists crossing the Channel. And, you know, it doesn't surprise me. Of course, that's going to happen. If there's an open door into the United Kingdom where no checks are being instituted, terrorists are bound to exploit it. Yeah. And this is something that I think would bring the government to its knees very, very quickly. If we see an uptick in violence in London, we see terrorist activity and we can link that to crossings in the channel. Rishi Sunak, frankly, is toast. And, you know, it's, it's forget about the political dimension. For a second, this is seriously worrying. Yeah. We could be having tens, twenties, hundreds of terrorists crossing that channel right now. We've got no idea who's coming in. And of malign forces are bound to expose that weakness, exploit it. It's terrible. Yeah, that's a dreadful piece of news. We're going to check that out. Thank you very much indeed. Ben Habib yeah. uh, with the latest news from uh, what he's hearing from his sources on the other side of the channel and who uh, is now coming. We will check that out. We'll get some terrorist experts on that uh, and bring you more on that particular story as it happens. Coming up, uh, we're going to go live to Turkey where uh, the suggestion now is that there could be as many as 6,000 people dead both in Turkey and in Syria as a result of those two earthquakes that hit yesterday. Deadly quakes. Uh, destroyed loads and loads of buildings. It's still a very, very dangerous and disastrous situation. We'll bring you the latest from there coming next on Talk TV. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We've got much uh, to say and plenty of time to say it in. Uh, I can see as I look out the window here that the sky uh, is clearing. The fog is lifting a little bit. Sarah in Winchester says, Morning Mike, did you hear Liz Truss giggling in that clip you just played? I'm furious. How dare she? I'm a struggling single mother with a disabled child. My monthly mortgage is now nearly unmanageable. Only just about keeping my head above the water here and she dares to giggle. Well, it was a very strange interview altogether and a very odd thing uh, that we saw yesterday. We'll be looking into that a little bit more with James Hill from The Spectator, uh, who also, uh, of course, did that interview with Katie Balls uh, and Fraser Nelson. Right now, though, uh, it's time to cross live to Turkey. Uh, we've been watching pictures now for more than 24 hours uh, in the wake of that dreadful event, uh, the, a big earthquake that happened in the early hours of Monday morning. There was a second earthquake that took place um, in uh, the part of Turkey which borders Syria. There's thought to be now as many as uh, nearly 6,000 people uh, who have died. We're going to go live now to Istanbul uh, to talk to Arda Tunka uh, to get the latest from Turkey. Uh, Arda, a very good morning to you. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you for having me. Obviously, terrible um, uh, events happening to uh, the east of, of where you are. Um, what is the latest situation? I understand there was another tremor today. Um, mm -hmm. It seems to be the aftershocks are continuing. 
Yes, aftershocks are continuing, and I think uh, as per the statements by the officials and uh, from the geologists in Turkey, unfortunately, some some new uh, earthquakes are going to occur in uh, in the region. Yeah, and uh, so far we have had quite um, unfortunate uh, events and unfortunate uh, scenery uh, from the region. The epicenter is is uh, Gaziantep, which is um, quite an important area, economically uh, an important area, and uh, approximately 13 million people have been affected uh, because of the earthquake only in Turkey. I don't know the figures coming from Syria, but uh, we have getting information. We have been getting information from officials in Turkey, and uh, and again, unfortunately, again. Uh, I think the the numbers, the, uh, the 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 people killed here in Turkey uh, are going to uh, increase mm. uh, in the coming days. And uh, we absolutely know that there are lots of people under the rubbles uh, who wait for some some rescue teams yeah. uh, to be rescued. And this is a disaster, economic disaster, a human disaster. And also a psychological disaster yeah. for all human beings, I think. Yes, absolutely. And our hearts go out to all the people there who are doing the very difficult work that we're watching now on our live stream from, from Turkey. An awful lot of the buildings in that area seem to have collapsed um, yeah. uh, on, on top of each other, apart from anything else. But but just let's talk a little bit about the region itself, because you said it's, it's economically quite an important region. There's a lot of tourism mm. there. It's quite historic. Also, I'm told it's the centre of uh, many things uh, like apricot growing. Um, there's an awful lot of business conducted there, and it's quite highly populated, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And especially Gaziantep is, is one of the uh, industrial hubs in, in Turkey. Uh, there are lots of uh, companies in the area which uh, export goods and also services out of Turkey to the neighboring countries, and also it is also a hub for the uh, for the uh, people coming from Syria. There are lots of lots of people. It's it's a quite a, a culturally mixed area, culturally yeah. rich area, and uh, as you said, we have also. Uh, the uh, history of Christianity, history of Islam, history of, of, of Judaism, uh, lots of monuments, lots of uh, historical sites uh, in the region, we, we know. But we haven't come to that point yet. And, and first of all, people should be uh, rescued. This is the top priority, of course. But it is culturally, industrially, I mean, from, from different aspects, from different angles, it is quite an important region yes. for Turkey. And from Istanbul, where you are, Arda, um, what can be done? Because it's quite a long way from there. Obviously, relief efforts are coming in internationally as well. But is it a mm -hmm. difficult place to get to at the moment because of the way things are? Yes, it is extremely difficult. And the most important, the most crucial thing right now is to get correct information from the area, from the region. Because whatever you, you might uh, in 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 good sense can be quite uh, harmful for the people over there yeah. because you 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 might send goods uh, which might which might not be needed in the in the area. Yeah. Uh, that's why it is extremely important to get correct information and do the correct things. Uh, for that purpose, it is quite important for the governmental agencies, for the government governmental bodies 
to organize people, to coordinate people. Uh, I know that lots of people try to do something good, I mean, in, in, in terms of, of helping people over there, yeah. but now it is, it is correct information and correct action is the most crucial thing right now. And as far as the government's aid situation is concerned, um, obviously economically it's going to be very, very expensive to try and uh, repair all of the damage that's been done. And now, how mm -hmm. is the government responding right now? Well, we have, we have, we are, we are not there yet. First of all, we are trying to not even at that at the recovery point. We are not there yet mm. because at the, at this point, it is important to reach the region, help people. So this is the priority. But not in the coming days, but in the coming years, yeah. Turkey is going to address this earthquake quite heavily and uh, constantly because I think that uh, the cost is billions of dollars. Mm. Uh, we are. It is qu quite early to to give any figure about the financial cost of this this earthquake. But I can tell you that it is going to be billions of, of dollars. Mm. First of all, and Turkey has been uh, under difficult economic conditions re lately. That's why this is going to this earthquake is going to put a lot of pressure on the uh, on Turkey's economic conditions in the in the future. Um, but it's 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 obvious that Turkey Turkey needs help. Some of it is going to come from the government, from the state, and also maybe some financial aid is going to be needed from different countries. Mm. International help is obviously a must right now. Sure, Arda. Listen, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us, Arda Tunka, there uh, from Istanbul, reporting in uh, on that terrible, terrible earthquake in Turkey. Uh, the aftershock still being felt. Uh, there was one um, immediately after the first earthquake uh, yesterday in the early hours of the morning. There was another one at lunchtime yesterday, um, another one today as well. Uh, you can see from the, um, uh, the footage that we're showing you there that there is still a search ongoing uh, to find people. There are still believed to be thousands of people buried in the rubble. Uh, so far, up to 6,000 people are already thought to have died. Uh, it really is a terrible situation. We'll keep you updated throughout the day here at Talk TV. Coming up uh, sh very shortly, we've got calls of yours to take, so please do make them. Uh, we've got plenty of you who want to talk to us. We also are going to be crossing live to Southwark Crown Court, um, where the sentencing of PC David Carrick gets underway shortly. Uh, he's the police officer, of course, who admitted to 85 offences against 12 different women. Uh, there might be some graphic detail as to what he actually did. Uh, he's pleaded guilty to sexual assaults, to rapes, to all manner of dreadful um, offences, which uh, we heard about uh, in a hearing yesterday. Today he'll be sentenced, uh, so we'll bring you that as and when it happens. Coming next on Talk TV. Fast Talk. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On your mobile, on your wavelength, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Well, I told you things would become clearer. Things are now becoming very clear uh, as we enter the 11 hour. We've been on the air for one hour. The skies have cleared. Uh, the fog has lifted. Uh, we were able to tell you very shortly, thanks to Peter Cardwell, who's down at uh, Downing Street, Talk Radio's political editor, we'll be able to tell you exactly what the reshuffle has mean, uh, what it means for people, who's up, who's down, who's in, who's out, all of that. We'll bring you that in a moment. Laura Dodsworth is going to be here as well. She's going to talk about Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, she's also going to talk about Sam Smith. 
with and that dreadful video. Uh, she, I suspect, however, will not want it banned. Rob Clark will join us as well, Director of Defence and Security uh, at the unit in Civitas, because defenceless is the front page headline on the Daily Mail. As fears grow, shrinking military will get no extra funding in the budget. Generals and MPs warn that amid a global crisis, Britain will be left pretty much defenceless and that can never be really seen as a good thing uh, let's go live first of all though to peter cardwell outside downing street for us he's got some news uh, on the government and the reshuffle peter what do you got for us Hi, Mike. The reshuffle is done. It's over. It's sorted. And uh, we have four new government departments. They're very similar to some old ones. But let me just go through what's happened. Grant Shapps, he was the business secretary. Now he is the secretary of state for energy, security and net zero. That's a new department. Then uh, there's another new department for science, innovation and technology. And Michelle Donnellan is going to be the secretary of state for that department. Uh, she was the education secretary. Uh, Kemi Badenoch has become the secretary of state for business and trade. Uh, she is also pre President of the Board of Trade and Minister for Women and Equalities. Lucy Fraser has uh, got a promotion to Cabinet. She is now Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport. And Greg Hans, as expected, the Trade Minister, will become the, uh, the uh, Chairman and Minister without portfolio. So that's essentially it done. There will, of course, be some other rules to uh, fulfil. Uh, Greg Hans' role as Trade Minister will need to be filled and uh, as will Michelle Donnellan rule as well but essentially that's the main bit sorted out and uh, the machinery of government changes have been done we have those new government departments and uh, we're told this is to ensure the whole of government is geared up to deliver for the British people we're told it will ensure the right skills Downing Street says and teams are focused on the Prime Minister's five promises uh, having inflation growing the economy reducing debt cutting waiting lists and stopping the boats well uh, it's all happening uh, or rather it isn't uh, what they've done is uh, rearranged the deck chairs as Peter says thank you very much indeed Peter we'll hear from you later on Peter Cardwell, Talk Radio's political editor, of course. So just to recap, uh, the new chairman of the Tory party uh, is Greg Hands. Uh, he's Minister Without Portfolio. Grant Shapps is now the uh, Secretary of State for Energy, Security and Net Zero. Slightly troublingly. Uh, Michelle Donnellan uh, gets Secretary of State for Science, Innovation and Technology. Kami Badenoch uh, remains as the President of the Board of Trade. Lucy Fraser gets bumped up to Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport uh, as well. So uh, whether that makes any difference to the five aims of the Rishi Sunak government remains to be seen. You just heard some of them there from uh, Peter Cardwell, including Stop the Boats, uh, including, however, not... The Defence Department, which is what we're going to talk about now, because Rob Clark is here, Director of Defence in the Security Unit at Civitas. Um, there's a lot of problems out there, uh, not least uh, emanating from the war in Ukraine, Rob. We're, we're hearing from the military uh, and from some MPs that there's a concern about the budget for defence in this country and that it's not big enough. What's the uh, situation? Uh, good morning, Mike. Um, yeah. No, you're quite right. The defence budget has been, uh, it's actually been shrinking in real terms for the last two or three years. Um, so uh, the problem with the defence budget is people in defence are well aware that there's uh, many issues that need additional funding. However, the, uh, the Treasury are increasingly reluctant to, uh, in effect, basically pour more money down the drain, which is how they see uh, the, the MOD's sort of procurement uh, policies and how they handle their own, def um, handle, handle their own uh, budgets internally. So there's a huge sort of, uh, log ahead at the minute between sort of Ben Wallace uh, and the and, and the uh, the Treasury, uh, and to be honest, it looks increasingly doubtful that um, the, 
that uh, Rishi Sunak will release more for, more money for defence uh, in the in the spring budget. Mm. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a, a conversation going on since the um, uh, announcement that tanks would be being sent to Ukraine because suddenly the focus was on how many tanks Britain's actually got. And it turns out we haven't got very many. And the ones that we do have aren't particularly modern. So, I mean, this has been a policy, though, hasn't it, from the West, really, for the best part of the last few decades, where they basically all believed that the Cold War was over. We don't really need any hardware so much anymore. We now need to have more spyware. We need to have more cyber uh, kind of warfare going on and they've kind of neglected the nuts and bolts of, of what would normally be the military no exactly that um the, the nation's ammunition stocks uh would last i think uh around 48 hours uh if we were caught to fight uh in a in a conflict the size and the scale of ukraine so there's things like you said the nuts and the bolts it's the inner workings of, of particularly the british army but increasingly the navy and the raf mm. um and it's this term, uh, about two or three years ago, the Conservative government and the um, the Chief of the General Staff uh, then uh, described it as the uh, the sunrise to uh, sunset capabilities. So it's the, the idea that the um, that tanks uh, and, uh, and warships will become less important uh, and really start to invest more in things like cyber capabilities, drone warfare mm. um, and, uh, and space. And whilst those assets are all obviously very important and they complement... Uh, traditional conventional ground warfare um, as we can see in ukraine and other conflicts across the world it's uh, armored tanks and infantry which can take and hold ground and that's where decisive battles are won and lost unfortunately still yeah. and that won't change no and so what chance is there though under pressure uh, from various different sides i guess inside of government departments and when they try to get budgets and try to get money uh, what chance has defense got um, going to see cap in hand, Mr. Jeremy Hunt and Mr. Rishi Sunak. What, what can they get if they can get anything? Well, by my own estimation, uh, the MOD need at least £1.5 to £3 billion pounds, uh, this next year just to starve off inflation-biting cuts. So without that extra one5 to £3 billion, pounds, there'll be a real terms uh, loss due to inflation, mm. uh, which, which uh, it, it, look, it's looking increasingly unlikely that defence are even going to get that, to be honest. Mm. Uh, Rishi Sunak has uh, basically stayed very quiet on the issues of defence and defence spending. Um, they're not wanting to obviously preempt the uh, integrated review refresh, which is currently going underway. But how that's still taking time, how that's still um, underway, I, I don't know. That should have been done by the end of last year. Um, so it's all a little bit cloak and dagger how the IR refresh mm. uh, it, it hasn't been announced yet. We've got the spring budget in only five weeks' time. And increasingly, it looks like there just won't be any money for defence. Yeah, and that is going to be a tragedy for all sorts of reasons. Rob, thanks very much indeed. Rob Clark, Director uh, of Defence and Security uh, at the unit in Civitas. How about this from Dallas, who says, Mike, people are becoming increasingly disillusioned with net zero. And now there's a government department created to promote it. In your immortal phrase, what is going on? Uh, well, I think you're absolutely right to question that because, you know, to have now a department for net zero, uh, which is effectively being headed up by the Right Honourable Grant Shapps, the man who's once said to me, believe it or not, uh, don't you want to be the world's leader in onshore wind? I was quite baffled by the question and I responded, well, no, I don't actually. And I don't think many of you out there care about being the world leader in onshore wind either. Do you? You just want to be able to pay your bill, heat your house up, have some hot water for a bath every now and again uh, and have a reasonably comfortable life. Because we are, after all, one of the most civilised countries, one of the biggest economies uh, in the world right now in 2023. You shouldn't be sitting around shivering. You shouldn't be wondering whether you can afford to heat the hot water. 
You shouldn't be worried about whether or not you can stay warm. You should be able to get cheap energy. You should be able to access that whenever you want it. And you should be not worried about power cuts. But unfortunately, thanks to Net Zero and a new now Department of Energy Security in Net Zero, this is where we are. Advanced postulation for any angry nation. Ask for it by name. Talk Radio. The home of common sense. On DAB+, on the app, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We are waiting for the sentencing uh, hearing to get underway with PC David Carrick at Southwark Crown Court. We'll bring you that uh, as and when it happens. But first, I'm delighted to say Laura Dodsworth is here. Very good morning to you. Hi. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. Good. We've got lots to talk about today, uh, including Satan, which is always a good subject uh, for any uh, radio show, stroke TV show. I always like to bring Satan into it. Because yeah. you don't do it often enough. We, no, we don't. I mean, t- to be fair, you and I have been horribly remiss. We've really, really neglected the Lord of the Underworld. Yeah. We haven't talked the about Satan Lord. nearly enough. No. Beelzebub, um, what are his many names? Yes. The Horned God. That's him. Yeah, we, we've, we've been neglecting him yeah. to our shame. But luckily Mike there are Graham. some others who are invoking his um, image and or name uh, around the world, aren't there? There certainly are. So we were going to um, let's let's talk about um, Sam Smith yeah. performing what some conservative commentators have described as a satanic ritual on yes. the Grammys. Mm. Now the Grammys, of course, does have a huge audience. Yeah. I think this year it was twelve point four million people. You know, adults, but also children and young people yeah. watch it. And some people have said it's that... It's too what, late for me, to be honest. I didn't see yeah, it. And it's not really my thing. But, you know, its audience went up massively this year. Apparently had a 30% increase on the year before. Okay. You know, this is very widely watched. Maybe because Sam Smith sold his soul to the devil. Could no, be that. I'm kidding. No, it's a I joke. don't think yeah. that's it at all. No. But um, actually, there is, you know, there's a very long history isn't there, of musicians mm-hmm. using Satan to make themselves yeah. edgy, I mean, cool, when I was a teenager, subversive. I used to go to all sorts of sort of heavy metal type concerts with various bands like Uriah Heep, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, mm-hmm. you know. There was all kinds of imagery going on on their albums, which was entirely related to quadrangles and pentangles and all sorts of other things. You know, quadrangles. quadrangles? I don't think that's a satanic thing. Isn't it? No. Well, there you go. It shows you how much I know. But, you know, there was plenty of, you know, Led Zeppelin that had lots of imagery. There was all sorts of things going on. Um, that And quite a lot. I mean, they didn't really do videos in those days, but some of the live shows, they did some pretty weird stuff. There is some really weird stuff going on. I mean, most recently, um, I can think of the Lil Nas video where he plays an angel mm. himself and a devil and he gives the devil a lap dance in hell i mean okay. that's a pretty weird video yeah that's that's maxing satan up yeah um also you know going back to the beatles do you remember they had alistair crowley on the sergeant pepper yes. um album steve right. alistair crowley's this famous british occultist right. obviously there's black sabbath like you say you get illuminati well, symbols famously, everywhere famously, in, in music um, was it not led one of the led zeppelin albums if you played it backwards you know it was some incantation you know Oh, no, really? Yeah. Really? I mean, I'm going, well, why would you play it backwards? You know, I prefer it playing forwards, to be honest. Mm, maybe you were just missing the point. Mm. Um, I think Mick Jagger once said... big fuss over didn't nothing. did Mick Jagger once say something like, Worship me, I am Lucifer, in one of his songs? You know, this, is, yeah. this has got a long history. Now, what's going on? Of course, this is up for debate. Maybe musicians 
do sell their soul to the devil. Maybe they are just trying to be counterculture and subversive. They're trying to make a bit of money. And I think that... I don't um, think Sam Smith's problem is that he's subversive. I just don't think he's subversive enough. He's like the kid that lives next door that thinks he's being really edgy, but he's actually not very edgy at all. I'll be honest, I think he's a bit of an attention seeker. I think this looks like a really neurotic plea for attention. Narcissism. So, you know, after his first album, he came out as gay, didn't he? Then he came out as genderqueer. Apologies if I've got this wrong. Then he came out as non-binary. And now he is outing himself as a Satanist. I mean, he's not really outing himself as a Satanist. But he's just trying to grab the latest controversy Mm. to push his his own profile. Because he's he's already in the past two weeks been sort of leading the news of this kind of thing, hasn't he? With his uh, rather distasteful video for a song that he did, mm. uh, which I can't remember if it's the same song that he did at the Different Grammys. song. Different song. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of Sam Smith's music, I'm afraid. Don't own any of it. Don't stream it. Uh, don't listen to it. Um, but, you know, it's all much of a muchness, isn't it? I mean, you know, it's not very shocking, really. I don't Is know. Is it meant to be shocking? I mean, I, I actually think this does go to a different level, mm. I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, I, I will say, first of all, with Sam Smith, I'm a bit worried he's not left himself much headroom for controversy. You know, he's, he's reinvented his gender identity three times now he's performed a full-on mm. satanic mass type set at the grammys i'm not really sure where he's got to go if he wants to pull any more controversy out of the bag yeah. he's not not left himself much wriggle room no. has he no um but i do think it was quite a shocking set i don't know if you watched it i didn't but first of all they're introduced by madonna who has had somebody's just sent it to me so i'm kind of it's kind of on as we speak yeah i think you probably can't play it because of the song and right rights to that but you showed us still didn't you i mean you know it was very very red he had these women with very long hair over their faces around him and performing a strange dance mm. they look like satanic acolytes and then you have his partner on the, on the song the song is called unholy kim petras who's a transgender woman yeah. in a cage surrounded by devils and sam smith himself is donning a top hat with devil's horns right. you know he's casting himself as the lord of the underworld right. in this is he so not being slightly no ironic? small ambition no yeah, but is he not being slightly like- ironic and sort of suggesting that you know people paint him as this terrible figure and that's why he now looks like the devil but in fact he's actually just a singer when they have described what they were trying to do artistically with this set kim petras the the transgender uh the male identified now i'm going to get it all wrong what is trans woman Trans woman, yeah. thank you. There you go. Just so ask I, Nicola Sturgeon. She'll be able to help you out. Yeah, I'm doing a real Nicola Sturgeon yeah. here. We must talk about that in a minute. Not but, in that context. No, no. But um, Kim, Patra- Kim Petras has said that um, what the song is about is that religion is not for them, right. being gay, non-binary, trans. Right. And so they're showing themselves kind of in opposition to mm. religion. Well, religion's not for them. Well, they're not for the reli- ah, okay. for religion. But actually, I do think the set was kind of shocking. I think it... You know, that's why it has created a backlash among some conservative commentators, mm. because it's it's quite odd to show people supposedly acting as the devil and worshipping the Is devil it? on mainstream TV. Have you never TV? watched any sort of horror films that they used to put on, like Hammer Horror Films, where they used to have, like, have you never seen Rosemary's Baby? Of course I have. Well, that's about worshipping the devil, isn't it? But that's different. That's a fictional, dramatised context. Well, what do you think this is? It's not exactly non-fiction, is it? I know. I hear you. I think they're simply courting... Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Controversy. I don't think yeah. it was a live satanic mass, not for no. one moment. But it is shocking for people to see, especially if they're Christian mm. or, or really of, of any of the Abrahamic faiths, I guess. You know, you have to remember that Salman Rushdie's re- released a photograph mm. of himself recently with a missing eye yeah. and, and scars on his face for having upset Muslims years ago. Yeah. And actually, I think there is something where Christianity is seen as fair game. Yeah, no, sure, we can, we can put on a performance um, invoking the devil on live TV, mm. you wouldn't get that targeted at other religions. So no, I think, I'm sure if, I think they were wanting, if, they'd, if they'd said to the Grammy um, organisers, we're going to do this um, sort of video skit where we make fun of Muhammad, mm-hmm. they'd have all gone, oh, oh, don't do that. Please don't do that. Yeah, so I think for some so people this, this could be shocking and loaded. But I don't, think it's, I don't think we should be worried about, you know, sort of, you know, so-called edgy performers doing things which are edgy. Because they're not really that edgy. They're just kind of, it's just showbiz really, isn't it? It is, but you do wonder where they're going to go next. Like, where is poor Sam Smith going to go now? Well, His last video, which you just referenced, was, I mean, that's another thing I think was probably deliberately designed to stoke up uh, a reaction. Because this in this video, he's basically playing paraphilia bingo. Yeah. There is a lot of weird stuff going mm. on. He wears a series of... Um, quite unusual and I suppose feminised outfits because he's non-binary and it did trigger a backlash and then people can say oh well you know you're being um you're being homophobic or transphobic or Mm. fatphobic because other people haven't liked the video but it was it was highly sexualized and again not age rated. Yeah. They know what they're doing when they create this. They sure. want the column inches. It's of about course. courting the media attention. Yeah, of course it is. And sometimes they get it wrong. But mm. I would be very wary of anyone who wants to censor that kind of thing. Is my only kind of my, my sort of default position would be don't censor stuff because you know let them do it. I don't think it's particularly clever. As I say, I don't think it's particularly edgy. I think the other interesting aspect of some of this, particularly in America, is there is a sort of strain. Uh, of the right wing, and sometimes it's often the sort, of the sort of Christian right, if you like, who believe that there is this kind of conspiracy of devil worshipping and Satanism and, you know, paedophilia. And, you know, these are the same people that turned up at that pizza joint in um, mm. Maryland because they thought that there was some kind of paedophile ring being run by Hillary Clinton. So, you know, there is that kind of slightly odd place that mm. some of this goes to. And the undercurrent of some of the criticism is that this is what these people are really like. Look, they're trying to, you know, train, they're trying to retrain our children. They're trying to, you know, indoctrinate them into their ways Mm. so that they can take advantage of them sexually. And I think that's all a bit mad. Well, you can't deny, I'm afraid, that there is Satanism. That's a genuine thing. There's a Church of Satan set up in 1966. Not that I'm suggesting for a moment that any of these performers are part of it. I think everybody at some point in their teenage world has kind of come across some weird thing like people used to do Ouija boards and stuff like mm. that I mean I never really did it I was always a bit frightened of Satan actually when I was a kid I think you're but supposed was, to be but Good I was boy. quite sort of fascinated by it well because I was raised as a Catholic so I mean Satan is literally like the, the de- literally the devil you know and you actually are supposed to learn that, that bad things happen because the devil makes you do them you know which is a kind of an odd thing to say to a child mm. you did that because the devil made you I think, though, there is a broader point about all of this weird symbolism you get in music, which is, which is why. I mean, really? 
Why? Why are you doing yeah. this? Why are the Illuminati symbols? What does it mean? You can read into this whatever you want. If people do take away a conspiracy mm. theory that there's something deeply bad happening, I don't really blame them because music is imbued with some extremely odd symbolism yeah. and visuals. But I'd be more concerned about the really bad stuff that's being done by governments around the world rather than worrying about Satan, to be honest. It's all a, it's all a big smoke screen, Speaking isn't it? of which, let us go to Scotland, shall we? Yes. Shall we have a look at a bit of video from uh, this week? This is Nicola Sturgeon's latest difficulty with the uh, trans scenario. Tom Gordon. Tom Gordon. Uh, thank you, uh, First Minister. Um, I think you just referred to Ira Bryson using the word her. Does that mean you do, in fact, think Don't she is a woman? Anything into... I, I am trying to rationally to individual, look. You started I, I'm, her. What I'm trying to do is address the issues rather than take it into the kind of, uh, you know, headline generating. I'm trying to rationally deal with the issues that arise here, um, and that's what I'll continue to but, try to do. Why did you say that? I, you, I, I can't remember. I'll it take your word for it. it. Well, like fine. A Freudian look, slip I'm, that I'm you trying think of not to. As a woman, is that I'm, not the case? But, but what I'm saying is. Isla Bryson calls herself a woman, but what I'm trying to say is in the context of the prison service, that is not the relevant factor here. The relevant factor is the crime that uh, the individual was committed, uh, has committed and has been convicted of. But we've all been asking you, and you've been running away from the, uh, the question, we have been asking you for days, do you regard Isla Bryson as a she woman? herself as a woman. I regard uh, the individual as a rapist and in the context, to say whether the, the context of the prison service, what matters is that uh, the individual was convicted of rape and that is what we're talking about here and that's what I will continue to, to focus on. And it's never going away this is it for her because she can't escape it now. Oh, I hope it's not going away. She's become my favourite weekly news item. Yeah. Every, every week brings fresh joy. Mm. It's hilarious. You see, the thing about all of this gender ideology is that nobody can really explain it or justify it when you ask no. when you ask questions like well what is gender what does it mean to identify as a woman etc the basic things no one can ever really give you a mm. satisfactory answer so you've got academics who've produced essays and papers which are so impenetrable that i think that people don't want to pretend that they're they're stupid mm. and they don't get it so they go along with it and what Nicola Sturgeon and all these policymakers have done is it's like they've created a maze. They've created a maze yeah. based on gender ideology. And we're all supposed to be lost and confused and not speaking out because we don't want to admit we don't get it or we don't want to be seen as unkind. Yeah. We don't want to be ostracised for being unkind or, or, God forbid, conservative or something. But now she's gone into the maze and she's lost. Yeah. She's falling over. She's lost she in a maze a of her out. own creation. She can't get out of this. Yeah. Because if she says that Isla Bryson is a woman... Yeah which pleases the trans ideology activists. Mm. She upsets women, people who care about the law, rape, justice. Yes. If she describes Isla Bryson as a man, she undoes everything she's ever said mm. about self-ID. She's caught between a cock and a hard place. She's got nowhere to go. What, what's she going to do? And so every week we're just going to have to see the, keep seeing this play out. May they never stop asking her questions it's be about brilliant. it. Also because, of course, she was, before all of this blew up in her face, saying exactly that, that Ina Bryson was a woman because she believes herself to be one. Now mm -hmm. she can't say it, so she's already contradicting what she used to believe. Yeah. Because when she had that other interview, that was Tom Gordon, by the way, who is a guy I know quite well. He's the Herald's uh, political uh, editor, good guy. Um, when she was asked last week about it, um, when she realised that she'd got herself all tied up in knots 
when she said in this context uh, clearly she's not a woman you kind of go okay then so now you agree with everybody who was against you before it's incredible it really is and now yeah. she's got negative uh, polling ratings for the first time in the history of her leadership of the SNP and of, uh, of Scotland and now um, Alex Salmond is having a go so even he is starting to look relatively sensible in the, in the case of, uh, of this particular yeah. story saying that the gender law has actually squandered the independence uh, movement and its momentum well, I can't think of a better result. She mm. was she was politicking entirely for independence and her own agenda, quite happy to throw women and women's rights under the bus. Yeah. And it's done exactly the opposite. So good. Good I for know. her. She's, she's you know, live by the sword, die by the sword. She's fallen on her own sword yeah. here. I think she's done now. I think she's finished. I hope so. And I hope, really, that what's really finished is this crazy illusion. Mm. Uh, do you know, going back then to Sam Smith and Kim Petras, what's yes. interesting, if you read the articles about the Grammys... All the way through, they're described as they and she. Mm. They're both biological males. Yeah. You know, we've reached this crazy stage where we're we're literally denying the evidence of our own eyes. Yeah. Now, human beings are excellent at judging sex. Mm. We almost never get it wrong yeah. when we meet somebody in the flesh. And yet we're constantly being called upon, not just in terms of courtesy but so and social applications, but, but also legally yeah. to deny the evidence of our own eyes and use the wrong pronouns yes. for people. And... It's this example of the rapist that really brings it home. And, and, and unfortunately, I think some media companies are complicit as well, because as you say, you know, covering these mm. events, you should be able to call those people who are involved in those events, not what they wish you to call them, because under no other world in newspapers that I know of or in media coverage of events do you refer to people other than as you refer to them. You know, you don't go to a press conference where somebody says, I'd like you to call me Tommy, even though my name's actually Jim, and you go, oh, OK, Tommy. You just go, no, your name's Jim. I'm going to call you that. I'm going to write down that your name is Jim and you said this. Mm. You know, just because you want me to do something different, that's not journalism, is it? No. Well, talking about the media being complicit in falsehoods, I did want to um, talk about the Cochrane uh, evidence review into masks. Um, yes. I'll, I'll give the name of it because I th really think people should look it up. It's called Physical Interventions to Interrupt or Reduce the Spread of Respiratory Viruses. Mm. Now, co the Cochrane Institute is the, it's the gold standard for yes. evidence reviews. And um, a group of very distinguished authors have gone back and looked at all of the good evidence as to whether masks, different types of masks, mm. but also hand washing. Um, and How about hand wringing? <laughs> that doesn't work you either. You might as well you look at hand wringing. Um, whether, whether masks and hand washing can reduce the spread of COVID, yeah. but also flu and other respiratory-like mm. illnesses. Now, the reason I introduce this by talking about the media is that we've been told through the media in this country and all around the world that masks work, that we must wear masks. In fact, one of the most popular hashtags at some point in the last couple of years was wear a damn mask. Right. Hashtag wear a damn mask. I can't say I ever used that. And even, no, not me, but more like the other way around. And even so much as a month ago, do you remember when we were told COVID cases were rising, the NHS is going to fall over, blah, 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 mm. the annual winter thing? Yeah, yeah. We may have to wear masks again. Some hospitals and GP surgeries reintroduced masks. Nicholas Sturgeon called for masks. Yeah. You know, lots of our brightest public health figures have called for masks. Yeah. And now this Cochrane review has come out, we can see that actually 
Um, surgical and medical masks make little to no difference mm. on transmission. Um, the N95 ones, so those really um, mu much better quality the sort ones. sort of hard ones, right? Yeah. yeah. If they're fit properly, they also make very little difference. Mm. Funny enough, the, um, the most effective intervention the authors found by looking at all the good evidence going back over years was hand washing yeah. and disinfecting surfaces. But even that is quite a small difference. Mm. So say you're in a school setting and you thoroughly institutionalise hand washing and disinfecting yeah. surfaces, you may reduce the transmission by about 10%. Right. But you have to institutionalise it. But and if you stop, point, it all comes back. But also, did they not stop at, uh, at one point and say that actually they worked out that there was no transmission of COVID from surfaces? Because initially they thought that's where you could get it. Mm. Um, I mean, I still see people to this day, um, you know, opening sort of, you know, the communal toilet door by kind of going like that and opening it all uh, by pushing it up there. And it's like, what do you think no, you're that, doing? That might be better in terms of E. coli than airborne viruses. Yeah, but, I mean, but actually, no, that's I mean, if the you're thing. that worried about getting germs, I would suggest don't go out. Bear in mind, I just said 10% in schools. This isn't a very big difference no. at all. And you have to... The, the problem is that a lot of these studies... In fact, the Cochrane Review found that about half of all the really good studies didn't address the harms of mask wearing yes. and other interventions. If you make little children wash their hands multiple times a day mm. and you get very anally retentive, let's say, about wiping surfaces, there are other effects. For instance, you get skin irritation, rashes, allergies, and there's a psychological impact. Yeah, but there used to be a name for people who were constantly washing their hands. You know, they were called obsessives, weren't they? I mean, I mean, when they call people with, you know, yeah. um, compulsive disorders, etc., because all they did was wash their hands all the time. You want mm. everybody to be like that? I don't think that's healthy. No, it probably isn't healthy for what would probably be not good a, for your small, hands a small effect. So this review is completely definitive. And if we think that just a month ago we had health experts, people at the NHS, people political party leaders telling us we had to don our masks again. And the reason I think that people should really look this up is it's mm. got a plain language summary. It's very, very easy to read. If you're someone who is still wearing a mask because you believe it works, mm. read this report. Right. If you never did and you want to be vindicated, read the report. If you're not sure, read the report. And bear in mind, this evidence review is for, at the worst case scenario, surgical masks doesn't even look at cloth masks mm. because it wouldn't do no. because of course they don't work right. so i think it's a it's a really good enlightening study now what's really interesting is one of the authors has said they've been contacted by one of the three big press agencies mm. so that's going to be reuters agence press or um associated press yeah. right saying that um people have been misinterpreting the study and saying that masks don't work and obviously they want to debunk it can mm. they interview the authors now, this is a great example of fact-checkers doing a backwards calculation. Yeah. What they want to say, for their own reasons, which is probably going to be a mixture of sunk cost fallacy yeah. and not believing the own, their own part they played in upholding a total lie for mm. two years, is they want to go back to the author and say, come on, we've got to show this isn't true, that masks do work. But that's not the way evidence-based reviews work. This is good quality evidence. Right. This is the same Associated Press, of course, who put out one of those warnings about words that we shouldn't now be using uh, as a tweet, which they talked about, you know, groups of, um, of nouns, nouns that were some, in some way derogatory, including um, the French. <laughs> and they then had to get rid of it because it's such a ridiculously stupid tweet that they had to get rid of it. Um, I'm French that. identified. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, what imagine, does it even mean? Not well, be able to say well, it was as the if, French. So, so, like, if you say, well, of course, the French would say that. Apparently, that's a derogatory thing. It's so funny to list the French with all I of know, these, all of these what, disadvantages was, one may how, have yeah, in life. They, they crawled so far up their own backside that they hadn't actually seen the light that was shining on them. Going, this is actually really stupid.
and insulting to the French, yeah. who, by the way, are very proud of their heritage and don't mind being called the French, well, because having they lived are. in France for a year. They the are French the French are great. They are the all. French. We're the Brits. What are supposed to call them? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, there are other names available, obviously, but we wouldn't use them here. Anyway, um, a pleasure, as ever, Laura. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Laura uh, Dodsworth, not wearing a mask, me neither. Um, we'll come back to you very shortly. We still haven't heard uh, from Southwark Crown Court, but we'll keep you informed. This is Talk TV. Edgy talk, plain talk, unrivaled talk. Mike Graham, the only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. On your mobile, on your wavelengths, talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV with you all the way through until one o'clock this evening, of course, or this afternoon, I should say. Uh, back this evening at seven o'clock with Jeremy Kyle on Jeremy Kyle Live. He's on from seven. Piers Morgan from eight, of course, the talk from nine. Uh, that's all on Talk TV and Talk Radio, Sky 522, Virgin Media 606, Freeview 237. You can get us on DAB uh, or via all the apps, of course, as well. Chris Dahl, KC, is with us now. He's a criminal barrister, of course. We're going to talk to him about what he's going on currently, which is the sentencing uh, at Southwark Crown Court uh, of PC David Carrick. He's the police officer uh, who has admitted to 85 offences against 12 different women. Uh, we've already heard from Justice Kima Grubb, uh, who's been outli- outlining in rather graphic terms some of the actual offences uh, that he has been found guilty of committing. Let's just uh, pop back to the court to hear uh, what Justice Grubb has to say. But that offence in October 2021 was publicised Victims began to provide the accounts I have summarised. I have read the statements made by 10 of the 12 victims, both as to their experiences and the impact it has had. There is powerful and compelling evidence of irretrievable devastation in the lives of those you abused. Survivors of rape and coercive control react and cope in different ways. Those differences are apparent in the statements. Each one is traumatised. One woman feels as if she has been lost for the last 19 years. Encapsulating her experience with you as an encounter with evil which has caused long-lasting psychological harm. Denial, anger, hatred, betrayal, shame, self-blame and fear of being labelled a victim are common emotions. You have shaped their lives, deprived them of the ability to trust men and form relationships. Some have damaged mental health and suffer loneliness. They continue to question their own judgment. They don't trust the police. Some have tried to get back control by behaving in dangerous ways, self-harming, interfering with their own health and relationships pushing boundaries and almost destroying trust in those they value the most. Those you controlled are trying to recover their self-esteem and lost relationships, including with a daughter who self-harms and still has nightmares because of your abuse of her mother. These women are not weak or ineffectual. They were victims of your criminal mindset. The malign influence of men like you in positions of power stands in the way of a revolution of women's dignity. It is remarkable that with one woman being driven to report an allegation against you, despite your position and power, others felt able to act. Even today, courage calls to courage everywhere, and its voice cannot be denied. 
You are 48 years old. You were aged between 28 and 45 when you committed the offences for which I have to sentence you. When interviewed about these crimes at various times following arrest, you either denied any sexual activity or other offending or asserted that you always acted with the consent of the woman concerned. You pleaded not guilty to all charges when arraigned at hearings between December 2021 and December 2022. You changed your pleas in December 2022 and January this year. Beyond that, you have not expressed remorse or regret for what you have done, although you have demonstrated that these proceedings have had a grave impact on you, to which I will come. The criminality you have admitted may be called an unrestrained campaign of rape and abuse of women. It could be described as the work of a serial rapist, but it may not be possible to encapsulate succinctly the broad devastation you have caused through sexual violence and exploitation, all the time carrying the unique and defining... We're listening to Justice Kima Grubb explaining uh, directly to PC David Carrick. This is, for me, one of the great advantages of being able to watch a trial and to be able to watch a judge and to be able to watch the um, thinking and the thought process of a judge in a case as horrible as this. And I do apologise again for some of the graphic detail that you've been hearing. But let's talk to Crystal uh, KC, who uh, spent many, many hours in a courtroom just like that, um, sometimes defending criminals, um, not always defending them because he wants to, but just simply because that's the way the system works. Chris, it's a pretty upsetting case, this. Obviously interesting there to hear the effect on many of the victims of the women uh, who came forward to see, to tell what this man had done to them and how the trauma for them continues. Um, we're expecting, I guess, here um, a pretty long sentence, if not an indefinite one or a life sentence. Um, what are you making of it so far? Well, I think it's a shame in a way that, we're, that we are taking the, the approach of actually um, kind of not, not playing all of it. I, I know the media has responsibilities in terms of sensitive subject matter and the time of day and so forth. But I think it's really important that the public hear the full extent of what these crimes actually involve, what they, the impact that they have on victims, the victims' children. We've just been hearing the judge describe... Uh, one of the victims being effectively alienated from her own children, even her the children having traumatic uh, mental health breakdowns as a result of the experience of of a mother being raped by this by this man. Um, and and uh, all I would say is that I think it's it's so positive in our society that we can finally let people listen to at least some of what happens in our courts yeah. and at least some of the real job that judges like this have to do. You, judges are criticised so often in the media for their, you know, being soft or being out of touch. I don't think anybody listening to this judge describe these crimes and ultimately uh, in a short, short time, I'm sure, imposing a sentence that will lead to this man remaining in prison probably for the rest of his life and certainly into his late yeah. 70s or 80s um, would have any doubt that this judge knows exactly what she's doing. She knows exactly what these crimes are about and that she's doing her duty and her job on behalf of all of us with incredible patience mm. and skill. It's very, very hard to do this job, but I think she's doing an incredible job of it. Absolutely right. And, and, and of course, um, it's so horrific that it's something that most people would never encounter in, in their day-to-day -day existence, that, but it does happen. And, and I guess the broader question um, uh, for us 
to talk about, Chris, and you've mentioned it in a tweet, you know, what lessons can we learn from this? I mean, I was talking about the, the police last night. Um, you know, they've had now two opportunities. They've had this case and they've had the Wayne Cousins case. Two opportunities to look into the problems inside the police themselves because people, men like this, should not be able to access the police force at all. They shouldn't be hired. They shouldn't be recruited. There must be ways of finding finding out what their thought processes are before, you know, this is this man's been doing this for 20 years practically, you know. Um, there must be lessons to be learned surely for the police. There must be ways of, of finding why these men want to be in the police and, and making sure they can't get into it. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think this raises a broader question. It's not just about the police. We, 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 the most recent figures are that there were 67,000 complaints of rape mm. in a single year in this country. Uh, and I doubt if your listeners can believe the figure that I'm about to give them of the number of those, a number of rape convictions in that time. It's less than 2,000. Mm. So 67,000 complaints of rape and fewer than 2,000 of those resulting in a conviction in court. And one of the reasons for that has been outlined by the judge this morning. Even a police officer who was raped by Carrick, who worked in the field of sexual violence and rape herself and knew all of the, uh, you know, the, the, the information that, that anyone could ever know about the importance of reporting these crimes, the fact that people um, very rarely commit these crimes only once. They often go on to commit them more than once, either against the same victim or in this case against many victims. But if even a police officer, a trained sex offences police officer, is too frightened to report rape, and, to, and, and doesn't trust the system which she herself is sworn to work in and upheld, when she herself is a victim, then we need to ask ourselves as a society, are we doing anything right about sexual mm. violence and rape in this country? Because I can't see how 67,000 distilling down to just 1,500 or so convictions is, is any sign of justice for the vast majority of rape victims. And of course, that's the 67,000 who did report mm. rape. And yes. as we've heard in this case, there, there is a huge iceberg. That's the tip of the iceberg, I suspect, of those who are raped or, or subjected to sexual violence of some kind or another or domestic violence uh, of one kind or other who just never report it out of fear because they don't think they're going to be believed. Um, and, and as I say, even a police officer thought that no one's going to believe me. Now, now, when that's happening, we need to do something very, very different. And one of the main problems here is we just don't have as a society the resources to investigate these properly. And we don't have, unfortunately, the courts, the prosecutors, the defence lawyers to deal with these cases in the criminal justice system. They've all been reduced to the bone, all of these resources. And I'm afraid one of the prices as a society that we are paying is because we have for far too long ignored rape as a as a it's effectively become a form of epidemic which is not being treated in any way, shape or form. And I'm afraid unless we do something radically different, um, tens and tens of thousands of people, mostly women, but not all women, will pay the price for it. Chris, stay where you are if you could. Uh, we're talking to Chris Dill, KC, uh, who uh, is explaining the, the woefully low rate of convictions uh, of, of, of rape after allegations are made uh, by women. Let's go back uh, to Southwark Crown Court. Justice Kima Grubb summing up sentencing uh, PC David Carrick. And once again, uh, we do warn you that there is some graphic detail here. From Her Majesty's Prison Belmarsh and detained at the Rampton Secure Hospital. This was because the prison authorities feared you were suffering from severe depression. And after attending court on the 22nd of February, you had made a committed attempt to kill yourself. You had used a razor blade to make deep cuts to your neck, wrist and groin. You were taken to hospital by air ambulance 
returning to Belmarsh on the 28th of February. In defence statements served on your behalf on the 24th of May and the 14th of July, you claimed that what the witnesses complained about was either entirely made up or consensual. You were removed to Rampton on the 22nd of July for assessment and treatment. Thereafter, your lawyers had limited, if any, contact with you or news about you. It was only after the court intervened seeking an update in your treatment that on the 16th and 18th of November, the consultant psychiatrist responsible for you at Rampton Hospital provided a conclusion. This was that you were not suffering from any mental disorder requiring treatment in hospital and you would be returned to Her Majesty's Prison Belmarsh when arrangements could be made for you to be kept under 24-hour surveillance to protect your life from another attempt at your own hand. Those representing you informed the prosecution and court swiftly after your return to prison that you would be pleading guilty. In the meantime, as I have indicated, the victim T on the separate indictment had come forward and so further offences were laid against you. And as I've said, you changed your pleas to guilty in January 2023. In all the circumstances, I will allow 20% guilty plea reduction in the notional determinate sentence that would otherwise have been appropriate. I conclude from all the circumstances and information before me that you were driven to try to commit suicide as a self-pitying reaction to the shame wrought on you by these proceedings rather than from remorse. The starting point, it is agreed between the parties, is an assessment of dangerousness. Section 308, subsection 2 of the Sentencing Code, introduced by the Sentencing Act 2020, provides that where a court has to assess whether there is a significant risk to members of the public of serious harm occasioned by the Commission by the offender of further specified offences, the court must take into account all the information available to it about the nature and circumstances of the offence, may take into account all the information that is available to it about the nature and circumstances of any other offence of which the offender has been convicted, may take into account any information before <coughs> it about any pattern of behaviour of which any of the offences above forms a part, and may take into account any information about the offender which is before it. Serious harm is defined by section 306, subsection 2, as death or serious personal injury, whether physical or psychological. This predictive assessment must be made as at the date of sentencing and on the premise that the offender is not in custody. The author of the pre-sentence report concludes that you pose a high risk of causing serious sexual and physical harm to the public and presently to yourself. Let's I'm just go sure back to Crystal uh, KC um, for a bit of an explanation of what's happening here. Chris, this is where, very much the sort of preamble to the actual sentence. Um, obviously, the, the judge in the case will explain both to the, the offender, PC David Carrick, but also to the court and to us why the sentence that she's about to hand out is going to be the way it is. 
Yeah, absolutely. So judges have very strict sets of guidelines and rules that they have to follow, no matter how serious the case, no matter how emotional the subject matter, there are still rules to be followed. For example, this was a case, as she's just mentioned, where the defendant initially pleaded not guilty and then later changed his plea to guilty. Uh, if you plead guilty at the very start, the sentence is usually reduced by a third uh, from what it would be if you ran all the way to the end of a trial. Mm -hmm. Because he pleaded guilty later in the day, she's saying that the sentence will only be reduced by 20%. Uh, and by that, she's not talking about the amount of time in prison, in fact. She's talking about a reduction in the minimum term before he can apply for parole. So, so your listeners are not going to, or, or your viewers are not going to uh, hear today the date that he will be released. All they're going to hear today is that I'm absolutely certain he's going to receive multiple life sentences. And, and the judge at the moment is, ex is explaining in sort of legal terms why the figure that she's reached for the minimum period before he can even apply for parole mm. will be the figure that she's going to announce, which I have no doubt will be well over 30 years and possibly as long as 40 years. Yes. Um, and I mean, listening to some of the things she was saying there about his own state of mind, I mean, clearly... Um, an awful lot of time is taken during this process of when he, uh, since he's been in custody um, as to what is going on with him. Um, I think people might be surprised about that. Well, I, I don't know if they will when they understand exactly what the judge was talking about there. What she was saying was that he initially, because there were concerns that he maybe have a, a serious psychiatric illness, was initially admitted to a secure psychiatric hospital for assessment, um, which you... I think would expect, most people would expect someone capable of this level of criminality over such a long period would at least be investigated to see if they're suffering from a psychiatric illness. That's what happened in secure conditions. And as the judge just announced, the psych psychiatric opinion was very clear. He has no psychiatric condition. He had, for example, there was no question of him uh, being able to plead insanity or some other psychiatric defense in relation to these uh, offenses. And it was only after that that he finally entered his pleas of guilty. So the process was followed it's right that it's followed um, and ultimately justice is being yeah. done. We're hearing it being done live uh, on our on sure. our television. No, and we, and we will go back to it shortly. So, so what I meant by that was really more about the kind of the lay understanding, the, the ordinary person's understanding of the way that it's done. Because, you know, I, as you know, like yourself, a veteran of some of these cases. I mean, I remember sitting through the Jeffrey Dahmer trial in Milwaukee yeah. and people sort of gasping when it was declared that he'd been examined by doctors and it was declared that he was fit to, st to stand trial and that he was not mentally affected and that his crimes were not driven by a, a, a mental disorder. This despite the fact that he'd murdered loads of people, um, injected them with uh, acid into their heads um, and had sex with them after they were dead. You know, and people kind of went, oh, so he's fine then. Do you know what I mean? So there's this, I mean, clearly yeah. this man uh, is sane for the purposes of the law um, and, and does not suffer from any mental incapacity. However, um, there's obviously something wrong with him. Yes, and I think people need to understand the law and, and medicine don't always match up in terms of the way that they analyse right. uh, situations. So um, for, to have a legal defence, there are very restrictive um, psychiatric conditions mm. which can be used to plead insanity, for example. Yes. Uh, extremely narrow and very restricted form of defence. Um, whereas, of course, what, what often happens in these cases is that it turns out that someone doesn't have a psychiatric illness, as, as, as would be defined in medicine, but in fact suffers from a, a, a personality disorder mm. or a psychotic disorder, yeah. which is not a mental illness as such, 
Uh, although in practice, of course, that's that um, that disorder may lead that person, or, or at least be a part of the reason why that person commits such terrible crimes. In law, however, that doesn't count as insanity. It's not considered to be insanity. So you can often have people who clearly are disturbed mm. to use a general phrase rather than a medical phrase uh, and have very very serious psychological problems but the law says they are they remain responsible for their actions in law they know what they're doing uh, they could control themselves uh, and therefore the law does not give them a defense as it does if someone is suffering from insanity mm. to the point where they don't even know what they're doing they have no yeah. appreciation of the quality of their acts so paranoid schizophrenia schizophrenia is a good example of mm. someone who may be so distorted in their perceptions because of their illness that they don't even know what they're doing mm. they have no idea they're actually committing a murder or holding a knife for example yeah. and in those circumstances such a person would be committed to a psychiatric yeah. hospital no um, but i get that no I, I get that i'm glad you made that distinction i just think people sometimes need to have that explained to them yeah, let's go back to justice uh, kima grubb uh, in the sentencing hearing for pc david carrick well circumstances test is not met Thus, the imposition of a discretionary life sentence without a whole life tariff must be accompanied by an evaluation of the notional determinate term that would have been required to mark the gravity of the total offending had a life sentence not been imposed. That term provides the start of the calculation required to reach a minimum term an offender must serve. It must be for the shortest term that is commensurate with the seriousness of the offences before the court. <clears throat> Mr. Williamson, King's counsel, in his distinct and in his succinct and well-focused mitigation, submits that the criminality before this court does not reach the extreme limits found in the cases of the offenders McCann and Sinaga. I do not agree. Your offending was over 17 years and encompassed 12 victims. Moreover, the singular element which elevates your offending as a brutal serial rapist into that company is the principal aggravating feature of the explicit or implicit use of your occupation to entice, reassure or intimidate your victims. I have to bear in mind that my function is to impose appropriate punishment. And when that is served, the parole board will decide how to protect the public thereafter. Decades will have passed before that time comes. I conclude that the notional determinate sentence that would provide a just and proportionate punishment is 60 years. To that guilty plea, a discount of 20% will be applied. It is to your credit that you did not contest a trial. Your decision deserves this recognition because there is no doubt that a court hearing at which evidence is given and challenged provides a particular ordeal for victims. From the resulting term of 48 years, I have to set two-thirds minus the time spent so far in custody, which is 491 days. Stand up, David Carrick. I've made ancillary orders for deprivation pursuant to section 153 of the Sentencing Act 2020 and restraining orders under sections 359 and 360 of the Act. They will remain in force until further order. <coughs> the victim surcharge applies. I make no sexual harm prevention orders given the nature of the sentence I'm about to pass. On the main indictment on counts 16, 19, 29, 30, 31, 
32, 38, 39, 42 and 43. The sentence is four years imprisonment on each concurrent. On counts 24 and 25, the sentence is seven years on each concurrent. On count six, on the second indictment, I impose a concurrent determinate sentence of nine years. 31 sentences of life imprisonment are imposed on the main indictment on counts 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 17, 18, 20, 21, 22, 23, 26, 27, 28, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, 40 and 41. Also, five life sentences are imposed on the second indictment on counts 1, 2, 3, 4 and 5. This makes a total of 36 life sentences. The minimum term you will have to serve before the parole board can think of releasing you is 30 years, 239 days. And you may go down. David Carrick getting sentenced there to a minimum of 30 years uh, before he can be uh, even considered for parole. We're talking to Crystal KC. Um, Chris, I suppose um, nothing there particularly unusual or surprising. Um, it's a long sentence he's got, uh, quite right too. Yes, it's a long sentence uh, and the judge was incredibly careful to follow, as I said earlier, all of the ver various um, uh, guidelines and rules that apply to these cases. You could argue that it should be simplified so that it doesn't require a sort of law degree to understand how it all works mm. uh, some of the time uh, so that people can understand it without without me to translate it for them. But but nevertheless, I think it's the message is clear from the judge. These are probably some of the most appalling crimes of sexual violence ever recorded in English law. This, I have no doubt, is the longest sentence ever imposed uh, for sexual offences in English law. Mm. Um, other than, of course, where murder is involved. Um, and, and this man uh, will be well into his 70s before he can even apply for parole. The prospect of him being released, um, and, and, uh, unless, of course, he's in severely disabled or in some condition where he plainly couldn't commit a crime, I think are very low indeed. The, the likelihood is he'll die in prison. And 36 life sentences. In this country, they don't do those um, consecutively, do they? It's, you serve concurrently, meaning they're all sort of lumped together, as it were. Yes, and again, I think sometimes our sentencing system is a bit complicated for most people to understand. Uh, I'm not sure that the American system of giving you 36 times 100 years or something like that, where you end up with 3,000 years, makes any more sense. Um, but 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 what it all means in truth, and that your listeners and, and viewers will have, have heard the judge refer to four-year sentences and seven-year sentences and nine-year sentences, etc. This is because there were so many crimes committed by this man. Some of them, of course, were at the most extreme end of the scale, the most serious and violent of rapes. Others were less so, although for the victims, mm. deeply serious and deeply traumatic nonetheless. Uh, the judge has to pass a sentence for every single offence, uh, and therefore some of the offences sound like, well, why is he only getting four years for that, four years for this? None of that really matters. What matters is life imprisonment with a minimum to be served of a little over 30 years. He'll be well into his 70s, and as I say, I would be surprised if he sees the light of day again. However, 
I, 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 as we discussed earlier, I think the real big talking point for this case is not is not the the sentence itself, which I don't su su suppose surprises many people. Really, uh, everyone would have been expecting him to be uh, given a life sentence and, and and a very long minimum period. The the real question here is why wouldn't even police women who were victims of this man come forward? And the answer is because the system does not do justice to rape victims. The system needs to be ripped up. We need to start again, and we need to finally take rape seriously in this country, and we need to take rape victims seriously, and we need to think about what they want and what they need from the system. And what they don't need from the system is almost none of them ever uh, seeing uh, their, their uh, attacker charged. And, and they don't need to wait for one or two or three or more years, even to give evidence in court. Can you imagine the trauma mm. of being raped and then having to come back and often being told the day before the trial it's been cancelled, we mm. don't have enough judges or we don't have enough courts. It's an absolute national disgrace the way we treat, mm. treat victims of rape and sexual violence. Uh, and the more that you can talk about it on your programme and others, I think the more people finally will perhaps wake up to that reality. This is not an isolated case. It's an extraordinary and extreme case, but it's not an isolated case many rapists get away with it time and time again because the system lets them indeed and i mean the sentencing process is also under question in some cases not in this one because obviously this is such a high profile case that that you know as you say it's one of the toughest sentences that's ever been handed out 30 years minimum uh, for uh, david carrick 36 life sentences but i mean one of the stories that we've also talked about recently Chris, um, is the release of Gary Glitter, who came out of prison after serving eight years of a 16-year sentence. Um, and quite rightly, an awful lot of people asking the question, well, how is that possible? And I know that, you know, you'll probably say, well, it's because that's the way the system is. And is there, is there a, you know, cause for that system to also be looked at, for that kind of probation system to be looked at for these kinds of offences? Well, Gary Glitter, as I understand it, was serving a fixed term sentence rather than a life sentence and therefore failed to be released automatically at the end of at the end of the period of his sentence. And there, I, I, I'm, the, the, the offences that he was convicted of uh, may well have carried a potentially longer sentence and potentially a life sentence. And there are questions to be asked about someone like that who was a and has been for many years a prolific child sex offender mm. all over the world as to how that person could come to be released automatically mm. without the sort of risk assessment yeah. that I suspect your viewers and listeners would expect to take place before any serious recidivist sex offender is allowed back on the streets. Um, my, my view is that we have, in this country, we have lost sight of reality. We have we have people being convicted of drug offences, for example, which are serious, of course, and I understand that, you know, many people consider drug dealing to be a terrible thing, but often for three or four times longer than child sex, sex offenders. Mm. And, and, and child sex offenders are being released um, often after two or three years, and sometimes even receiving suspended sentences where those involved in other forms of crime, which I suspect most people would consider less serious in the grand scheme of things than raping or abusing children um, are being locked away for decade mm. after decade with no apparent purpose and for no real reason. Yeah. So we should be using our prisons, which are massively overcrowded, often with non-violent offenders. Uh, it has to be said that almost 70 percent of those in prison are not violent, haven't committed any violent offence. Well, many of those places should be freed up to, to re retain in prison sex offenders and those who represent a risk to the public that people actually care the most about. Mm. And, and, and the and, law yeah. should recognise our people who cannot be rehabilitated from what it is that, that drives them to commit those kinds of crimes. 
Well, I'm not sure that that's the case. I mean, I, I mean, I think there are a small number, I agree with you, who can never be rehabilitated and will always have a propensity to offend, even if they live to be 100 and they're in a wheelchair. There, there are there are a, f a few that are really that 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 entrenched in sexual behavior that, they, that, that, that nothing will stop them. But for, 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 you know, the truth of it is there are so many. I, I talked earlier, 67,000 rape complaints, probably hundreds of thousands of people who feel they have been raped and don't report it. And if you add on to that all of the um, lower level if i can use that term sexual assaults of, of, a, of a perhaps less serious mm. nature as the law would see it you're talking about hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people a year who are going through those experiences now the truth of it is we need to be looking at why are so many people committing these crimes and it's not because we don't have half a million prison places to put them all in it's because as a society something's gone desperately wrong mostly in the minds of men not always young men but men of different ages but something's going wrong with our society that is leading so many men to assault so many women children and other men in a sexual way and and, and you know yes of course we need to have better protection of the public from those who are at risk of committing very serious crimes daily we need to have treatment programs we need to have the right kind of prisons to actually make sure that we're doing the best work we can with these people but but there's a bigger question isn't there because these the, you know things are happening because of what's going on in people's heads is there something going on out there which has made this wave of sexual violence so so large a tidal wave of sexual violence and domestic violence in this country every single day what's going on in in our homes what's going on on the streets what's going on in in the police force and in places of work i i haven't got the answers but someone needs to look at this in a 360 degree joined up way and say how can we actually stop not it's no good just locking up one percent or two percent or five percent how do we reduce the number of victims that's what we need to be doing and that's what i'm seeing no evidence of any action being taken in that regard by the government at all Crystal, thank you very much indeed. Crystal, a KC there, King's Council uh, criminal barrister talking about the sentencing handed out just now uh, in a Southwark Crown Court uh, by the judge, Justice Kiba Grubb, David Carrick, 36 life sentences with a minimum term of 30 years. It will be 30 years when he's 78 years of age uh, before he can even consider applying for parole. Some people asking the question, how should he be able to apply for parole at all? Uh, the answer to that being, of course, that under the criminal system, under the uh, rules which are very strict for sentencing guidelines, uh, there is no whole life term, as far as we understand it, for anything other than murder. He's been found guilty of 36 life sentences uh, for a series of rapes and sexual assaults that he admitted committing. So David Carrick goes from now straight to prison uh, for 30 years minimum. Uh, we'll keep you updated throughout the afternoon, of course. Ian Collins will be here from one talking about it. I'm sure Vanessa Feltz uh, also as well. Seven o'clock tonight, Jeremy Carl live. I'll be on that show. And of course, Piers Morgan at eight as well. This is Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.